Welcome to The Wealth Intersection with Megan Gorman. In this program, you'll hear fascinating stories from science, technology, finance, and the arts. Learn how dynamic individuals created their paths to success and the wealth intersections that occurred. It's where you might just find the answers on how you can pursue your passion while creating the necessary foundation to build personal wealth. And now, here is Megan Gorman. Hi, and I want to welcome you back to The Wealth Intersection. I'm Megan Gorman, and I'm glad you're joining us. So one of the topics that has me really excited from an investment perspective today is cannabis. And if you think about it, back in in 2000, only about 30% of all Americans approved legalizing cannabis. But today, the Pew Research Center found that over two-thirds of Americans approve of cannabis being legalized. And if you look at the demographics within it, most of the people who are supporting it are Gen Xers and Millennials. And so one of the things that you're starting to hear is, should I add cannabis to my portfolio? And when you look at places like Robinhood, the online investing app, they would tell you that probably in the top 10 stocks that most millennials put in their portfolio, they're choosing cannabis. So what I would like to do today is have a discussion about cannabis, and I invited one of the biggest experts in the space. Today joining me is Emily Paxia. She's the co-founder and managing partner of Poseidon Asset Management. Barclays Hedge awarded Poseidon the number one sector-based performing fund from 2016 to 2018. She's been named one of the most powerful women in the cannabis industry by Fortune Magazine, and she has reviewed thousands of companies in the cannabis industry and worked with a number of founders in a multitude of capacities, including consulting for founders' pitch presentations, go-to-market strategies, product launches, and day-to-day business operations. I'm thrilled to have her. Emily, welcome, welcome to The Wealth Intersection. Thank you so much for having me, Megan. This is really an exciting time to be talking about this particular topic. Exactly, exactly. And so I got to ask you, did you ever think growing up you would be a pioneer in cannabis? No, I definitely did not think that I would be a pioneer in cannabis when I was growing up because I was square in the middle of that war on drugs, the uh, Just Say No campaign. I remember them cracking the egg in the pan, telling us this is our brain on drugs. And and cannabis got lumped right in there with some of the things that actually are mind-blowingly dangerous and lumped in there with heroin, crack, all of these things that are highly physically addictive and have no positive effects to them. And so to me, cannabis was kind of a scary thing until just like most people I know, I got into high school and encountered it through social circles. And by the way, very easily for something that's not legal. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And yet, you know, I mean, I think if you think about it, you grew up in upstate New York. Yep. And you were an honor student on the track team. So you probably were not hanging out with the potheads back in high school. No, certainly not. I mean, the I grew up in a small town. I love where I grew up. I was just back there visiting, but I really did have aspirations to get out and see the world. And especially because when my father died when I was six, 15, just before I turned 16, it was like, Sorry. oh, yeah, no, thank you. Thank you. I mean, it's life always offers something up and it puts you on a path. And and that's kind of part of my path. But um, I always wanted to get kind of out and see what was going on in the rest of the world. So I knew that having good grades and being a high achiever was going to be the 
the ticket to do that. But so. your parents had their own businesses, right? They were entrepreneurs in that sense. Absolutely. Yeah. My father had a real estate business, so he was procuring real estate, fixing it up, and he was meticulous with the details. I just love this. He used to try to restore it to the era that it was built in with all of these wonderful fixtures, and then he would rent it out. Um, and actually, even before that, he had an entrepreneurial spirit. He was very creative where he was restoring uh, fancy cars and showing them at car shows. So he won a lot of money doing that and that's how he used that's the capital he used to start his real estate business so he truly was a self-made man in that sense and so I saw that and my our mother became a real estate agent she was also an accountant so she was running that side of the business and I thought that was really smart of them because they cut their own fees by (laughs) she was the real estate agent so I you know they were very they were very savvy in that sense so so you learned early on that having a family business is is key absolutely yeah it worked well in our home so so i think it's important to note who is your partner today my partner today is my baby brother (laughs) who i say was born i always say he was born 40 with a calculator in his hand and a pencil behind his ear (laughs) and he was trading stocks by the time i think he was 10 he's yeah he loves math and he loves finance so Yeah. yeah and did you guys growing up ever think you'd work together or were you just typical sibling relationship we, you know, we started to talk about this when I was in my early 20s. I think we, we got along, me and my other sibling, my, my middle sister and my brother, we, we get along really well. And we grew up sailing together. And I think that when you spend a lot of time in a on a boat, when some things can get dangerous and some things can also get intense when you're racing, you just learn whether or not you can work really well together and you gain a lot of respect for each other in those circumstances. So I think that we felt like we had a natu- natural inclination to teamwork. And so that's how we started talking about it. So... Yeah, no, that's great. So you graduate high school, you go to Skidmore, you focus on psychology, you go to NYU, get your master's in psychology. How do you go from psychology to cannabis? How do you make that jump? There, there, there was a jump in there. There was a jump in there. Well, so, so actually between the master's and cannabis was my career in market research and consulting. So I was doing a lot of work for Viacom and all of their subsidiaries, including Comedy Central, uh, Spike TV, anyway, and also American Express, also um, PepsiCo, Ralph Lauren. And it was interesting. I went through two significant shifts in consumer behavior during that time. The very first one actually was a project for Luxottica when I realized people were starting to shift into this true e-commerce purchasing behavior and before that it was almost unseen people were like how could you possibly buy sunglasses through the internet you can't see how it looks and and there was also issues around security of how you do that anyway that was a trend i watched take shape and it was something people couldn't even conceive of before it took shape then the shift from regular cable TV viewing to this over-the-top viewing to now people are viewing on devices that are tiny in their hands. That was another moment when people thought there's no way anybody will ever make that shift. And I worked on some projects for HBO. And so just seeing these huge shifts in consumer behavior and seeing how competitive those very saturated markets were, I think just primed my brain to see this industry in a different way. So I moved to California in 2011. I saw people who looked like you and I standing in line outside of a dispensary on Market Street. And I was, first of all, dug right in. What is the legal 
status of this how is this possible and this isn't the stereotype that we all grew up with it's not what we thought with the just say no it's normal people everyday people just trying to access something in an area where brick and mortar retail was shrinking this is people standing in line so and that was one thing that happened yeah. between the nancy reagan campaign and sort of you moving here is marijuana cannabis became part of pop culture it did i mean our generation had Snoop Dogg, you know, we had Bill Clinton getting into the office and we know he didn't inhale. Yeah. But it became more common for us, w- yeah. wouldn't you say? Absolutely. It's definitely been more woven into kind of our social construct of our lives I think in in our generation so yeah so I mean that was it so I just saw what I saw was white space and opportunity I saw incredible inefficiencies so and then I saw this again I had that opportunity to say people maybe can't even conceive that this could someday just be everywhere but when you have the experience of being able to see that happen before you can think about how do you lead it to that or how do you contribute to that so that's yeah so you see a gap you see a need Mm -hmm. You're like, okay, cannabis. Now you've got all this background in consumer product goods, Mm -hmm. right? How do you go from that to your, let's go set up a fund. A fund. Because you didn't come from finance. And I will tell you, as someone in finance, a fund is an intense experience. Absolutely. So So I call my brother, who does have a finance background, and I said, this is going off here. It's crazy. I think this is potentially the industry for our generation, this is the shift. This is the tech thing for us in this industry, in our generation. Um, and we talked about how we could participate in it. I, I, we, I was thinking about it more from a business side and he called me up and he said, I've thought of it. And I said, talk, let's talk about it. And he, and you know, being here in California, starting to really get to know people in the VC community and understanding what was going on on that side as well, that was starting to inform some of the ways I was thinking about it. But Morgan thought of the fund structure. And so we thought this industry is completely nascent at, the, at that point. So this is, this is 2012, we're having these conversations. So 2012, we start to think about this. He says, why don't we do this? There's going to be investors who want to invest into the industry. There's going to be businesses that need capital in order to grow or else the industry will never get anywhere. So why don't we create an actively managed fund structure? You can bring your background in terms of kind of qualitative research, business experience, working on growing and scaling products and launching products, brands, services, all those things. And I'll bring my financial acumen. And I said, I think that seems why not this is already we're already in kind of crazy land conversation that we're going to get into the cannabis industry and so we started to dig in on it and then we we both really went for it trying to find service providers and believe it or not that was incredibly difficult we got cole freeman and malins a law firm here in san francisco Uh they were the firm that took a chance on helping to form a cannabis fund we got um opus fund services as our our administrators yeah what people don't realize is when the word cannabis comes into the mix, people don't want to touch it. There's a lot of issues. So the fact that you got a law firm to help you, that was a big deal in the moment, I'm assuming. It was an enormous deal, and I'll never forget um, Bart for that. He, I feel like kudos to him because I think it also was a boon to his practice. People saw their name in our documents, and I think that maybe they've found more people for that and good for him for being for looking forward and thinking no 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 they're just trying to create a formal structure around this they're going to do all they're going to be audited and well that was another thing finding an auditor (laughs) tax people I mean it was just really difficult back then but 
But one thing That's about this, yeah. I, I'm trying to understand, right? Because you guys were in your early 30s. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming you were early in your careers. I, I don't think you guys had probably huge cash reserves to dive into. You know, when we've talked to a couple other people, there's always moments in being an entrepreneur where you take a very calculated risk. Mm-hmm. How did you and your brother expect to pay the bills while you're paying law firms and you're trying to get this even up and running? How mm-hmm. do you? How was that moment financially? I think that we both had, I think because of what happened with our parents and they both passed away, we did not, by the way, inherit money. That was not how we did this. We There was a small life insurance policy. That was our kind of little nest egg. But I think that we were so careful with our money through all that time, even though I was making quite good money in my previous career, um, I was always kind of net you know, keeping it. I wasn't spending a lot of it. So I had a lot of savings that I had kind of accrued over that 10 year period. And we just took a really calculated approach to how we were going to do this. I mean, we have, we had spreadsheets, we had our contribution of our own capital to it. And we ran it the way we would want our companies to run their businesses. So we were incredibly calculated about it. Um, And also actually having done a lot of the consulting I'd done for American Express, I figured out some of the small business tools we could use to help to kind of leverage the business a little bit in the very early days. But it was just about being incredibly meticulous and being very frugal. And it was very tight for a few <laughs> years, I will say. It was a humble beginning for this group. I, I have this one video of Morgan. We used to do these Airbnbs, and it would be one-bedroom Airbnb. This is a benefit of having a sibling for a business partner. Yeah. I would sleep on the couch usually because I'm smaller. He would get the bed, but, you know, he was, very, he was always offering, but I was like, your legs are going to be hanging yeah. out. Anyway, there was this one <laughs> place in Seattle. It was a heat wave. There was no air conditioning. It was absolute murder. And he's trying to get this futon open, this cheap futon open in this Airbnb from Ikea and he couldn't get it to open and as he gives it like a final push the legs pop out from underneath it and the whole thing goes on the ground so that's how we were able to afford this yeah you know you're right doing this with a sibling helps yes I think when you're with a regular business partner starting a business you're doing a delicate dance yes but with a sibling there's an intimacy and a, and a fact that the relationship has to keep going. Like, yes, yes, <laughs> it has to. I think yeah. g- g- gave you a lot of benefits in the beginning. It did. And I think that there. the other reason we do appreciate our humble beginnings is truly like, I don't know, I've heard the phrase garage band hedge fund or whatever. <laughs> like we really started it with just what we had and we just, it made us very disciplined. And I think that we also, because we went through that, we can understand where our founders are coming yep. from in their startup life. And and in some regards, we hold them to that standard. You, you have to be scrappy in the beginning. And I mean, we have an ethos of that our investors always come first. We never, um, I know some fund managers get a bad rap for, you know, passing through a lot of extra expenses. And we never wanted to do that because we were, first of all, a smaller fund. So we knew our investors would feel that more. And um, second of all, it's just, that's just not why we got into it. It wasn't so we could feed people and get on the gravy train. It was because we were building something. So so that brings up, you know, I think an important thing because when people think of investing in cannabis, mm-hmm. they think of the ETFs or the cannabis mm-hmm. stocks. Can you sort of succinctly give us an understanding of how a fund actually 
invest in cannabis and the life cycle. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the first, the first step is I think you have to divide up the entire ecosystem into the subsectors of that industry that one is interested in investing in. That's what exactly what we did. We said there's tech here, there's hardware here, there's, um, there are service companies, there's, then there's the whole plant touching piece of it. And then we said, we, we thought, are these interesting to us? Is this part of a portfolio construction that we feel like works together synergistically? And then we sought the founders, the people that always make the businesses work. And we found those companies in, in each of those subsectors. So I think that one of the things when people first look at cannabis, they think you just invest in a grow or in a shop or in a brand. But there's so many other ways to participate in the infrastructure of this industry that have huge upside potential. So that's the way we think about it. In this particular portfolio, we had a, a carve out for publics, public uh, names on the capital markets. And then we had a big focus on the private side because it was still super early. And we still felt like that was where a lot of opportunity came from. And then, not to take it too far, but we also invested across the entire capital spectrum because a lot of these businesses are cash flowing. They can't uh, obtain a small business loan yep. like a traditional business does. And so we stepped in there and underwrote some of that. And some of those have been, they've just been terrific investments at, with great interest rates. And we kind of laddered them through the lifetime of the fund. and. It also gave us a lot of information about how these businesses run and cash flow that informed other business investment decisions down the line. I once heard another interview you did where you said, this is not an industry where we move fast and break things. And as you explain it, to some degree, you could be talking about any industry from, you know, alcohol to sunglasses. You know, there's a life, there's a, there's a ecosystem. Mm -hmm. Do most investors, because you're dealing in the high net worth space when you seek investors, are most of them excited about that, surprised by that, that that is the, the way to approach it? Uh, you know, I think that our investors certainly appreciate it. I think that they, a lot of our investors have tried to invest into the cannabis and have had um, not such a positive experience in their one-off direct investments or whatever happened in the capital markets. But so I think they're, that they do appreciate that. And I think there is a sense of stability around that approach. Uh, the industry is moving so quickly. There's so much horsepower in it. And there's also a lot of people who are moving and talking very fast. Mm -hmm. And so I think that our investors appreciate that there's a level of we're going to take our time. And sometimes it means we've we don't participate in something. And I, I always say I've yet to regret that in this industry. If we've sidestepped an investment because we didn't have enough time to do the work and the diligence, I've not, we haven't come to regret that yet. I, we always are glad we took the steps and did the process. So. And so when you started this in 2012, when you first launched, you guys are crashing in a, you know, one place together with an Ikea bed. <laughs> How did you actually you know, and you, you came up with your philosophy. Mm -hmm. How did you actually go to market? Because, I mean, did a lot of people look at you like, you guys are kids, you know, where are you getting this money? Yeah. So it was, I would say we had three things against us. One was cannabis. People were not taking it seriously at all at that point. 
Two, we were young and an emerging manager team. And three, I'm a female. And I also have a non-traditional fund manager background. I did take the Series 65 and pass <laughs> on my first go. So it's, I feel like I haven't, I also, yeah, well, anyway, that's a sidebar, but, but I yeah. Also being, I find sometimes when you're a woman in finance, right, you, you're somewhere between a, this freak show and the unicorn sighting, right? They don't know what, how to really manage that. It's true. It's true. And I think that sometimes there's also, um, yeah, there's a lot of things baked into that of, of how someone responds to you. And I always say one of the things that's helped me the most is I have some really terrific male allies and the warm introduction yes. always makes the rest of the conversation so much easier. So, um, but yeah, so we had three strikes against us for sure. And, you know, the, it's funny, the first people who invested with us were lawyers who with their own practice very successful lawyers and I always say that I think it's because they understand understood the real versus the perceived risks of it they took the times to see that our documents were very classic fun documents so I think we and we ticked a lot of the boxes that we'd had we had our auditors lined up our back office all of those things so um, so those were some of our earlier investors and and so I don't know I mean I'll never I, I always I saved the first voicemail of an investor who signed on with us and that person is very near and dear to my heart because it's not lost on me that that person was taking quite a chance with us. Uh, but I think that people got comfortable because we just kept showing up and we just kept building the portfolio too. Was, that was the nice thing about that structure is it was an evergreen and so we were able to invest and invest and invest and so we were building a portfolio that was very clearly intentionally curated the way that it was and is and I think that that's just how we did it. You have to just start somewhere and build your reputation. So So how long into this did you and Morgan feel like, okay, we're onto something and we're actually doing it right? And mm -hmm. I know you have to be careful with the investment stuff, mm -hmm. but you know, how did you, when did you start to realize or has that not happened yet? Because you, know, no. you guys have been tremendously successful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's fun. Yeah. Uh, so I, I feel like we started to really feel like it was coming together after some of the early private investments closed because we first our first position in the fund was GW. I mean, and that's not rocket science. That was back in the day. Um, but it's, you know, I think that after that, we started to fill in with these private companies and then starting to see how the private companies, when we made the warm introductions, that they were lifting each other up and accelerating their path to success. Those were moments when we thought, this is really working. And I have to be honest, it's, it's every year we go to this trade show in Las Vegas. It's usually in November this year. It's in December, MJ BizCon. And whenever I walk on the floor of that conference, I almost always feel like I might cry just because when we first started there were 300 people at that conference there were 20,000 people last year oh my goodness. and yes and it moved from the Rio which is kind of like not a great hotel old school it's very old yeah it's lovely it's very nice very, very nice yes retro. yes it's lovely um I spent a lot of time there um but now we moved to the convention center so it was huge and wonderful and and it felt like this industry had arrived. And I feel like just seeing how our investment dollars translate into businesses growing, job creation, and things like that happening. And I think that just us continuing to be out there and, and then seeing a lot of investors now coming into the space and new funds forming, yeah. to me, that tells me that something must be working if there are people wanting to do it as well. So, yeah. And I think, you know, it's, 
There's, I think the, the big question, I think, for, for a lot of people is, is this 1932 before prohibition ends, right? Mm -hmm. Or are we, you know, is are we so far down the path that getting into cannabis is it is it too late for most people? Oh no, they're so no. It's it's first of all definitely not too late. Um, it it does require understanding where the right entry points are, mm -hmm. and there's a lot to that because I do think that some people who may have invested in the some of the peaks of a lot of the public names last year are feeling that a little bit, but there are some companies that have traded all the way back down. They're trading at one times or even below revenue for this year. So there's a lot of opportunity still left in this space. And especially on the private side, I mean, we still have, we have 33 states. There's eight, I think, on the ballot for the next election. So there's a lot of horsepower left in this space. And then there's, of course, the fact that the whole rest of the world is unlocking like we've got things going on in Mexico, Colombia, Europe. It's very exciting. So it's still really early days. I think people can definitely get into it. Uh, but it's the nice thing about it is that the investment landscape has become much more structured. People know what it means to be asked to put a deal room or data room together to run through diligence checklists. Right, right. There's a lot of, and there are a lot better, there's great lawyers in the space now helping businesses to form their entities correctly, to think about it from everything from tax standpoint to structuring for expansion and IP. And so there's a lot of things that have improved. And I feel like now there's a great foundation, but there's still so much growth ahead of us. Yeah, and in the industry, I'm assuming you're seen as an old hand who's been around, knows how to, to run it and do it. Mm -hmm. Is this is that sort of funny in such a short period of time? It is. I mean, the acceleration on this, I say there's, there's a lot of acceleration, but it is a steep learning curve. Mm -hmm. uh, we've gotten really comfortable about what we look around the corner for potential issues that are very specific to cannabis industry scaling and growth that some other people, I think, struggle to anticipate. So... That there's it's, so that part of it is steep, but obviously there's we've grown quickly and and our time and in, in, we're in our sixth year doing this, and that's a pretty long time in this modern cannabis era. Uh, so I think yeah, that's that's interesting. But we do get looked to to lead rounds of financing a lot, not just by our founders, but by other investors. And I really appreciate that. Right. <laughs> it can be really time consuming, but I think it's also a really, it's a process that we've got a pretty good flow of, and we have a great legal team to help us with that. So with um, Forella, but I feel like that whole process that got us here set us up well to lead these rounds and, and we're happy to do it. And so, um, and, and in fact, we, we love to do it because even if we're not the biggest check size in that round, it's actually making sure that our early invest, earlier investments are well protected because the structure of the next round is, is beneficial to the company, beneficial to the early investors, and it's bringing in the new capital, which is what is important. So it's, it's, a, it's that fine balance of how do you attract more capital, how do you take care of the people who took a chance on you, and how do you make sure the company is poised for growth. So. Well, I'm going to pause right here, and we're going to take a break. But when we get back, we're going to talk more about some of the philosoph philosophical aspects of the cannabis business. And we will be right back in a few moments. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Tune in to the soul of enterprise, business in the knowledge economy, with co-hosts Ron Baker and Ed Kless. 
Ron and Ed will show you how to recognize that wealth is created by intellectual capital. It's all in the possibilities that we can create and that are created for us. These possibilities are destined to be discovered by human imagination and through the service of others, creating a brighter future for all of us. The Soul of Enterprise is heard live every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel and simulcast at the same time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Many industries have been revolutionized by technology in the last decade. Books, music, TV, communications, and now it's happening to our money and the way we pay. Tune in to Breaking Banks with Brett King for a look at how technology and customer behavior will bring about more changes in banking in the next 10 years than in the last 200 years. Listen every Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific on Voice America Business Channel or on AM 1160 The Voice. You'll never look at your bank account the same again. There are many business podcasts out there, and they focus on the success stories, the top people in the fields, and what they're doing right now. But each of these people have a backstory, a ramp up to how they got where they are today. Tune in to the Authentic Accountant Podcast with host Seth David and co-host Erica Ed. We'll compare the good times with the adverse, find out the beginning and the current state, and learn the building blocks along the way. Listen every week for new episodes on Voice America Business. 80% of judgment enforcement in the U.S. ends in failure. How can client judgments be collected in spite of that number? Listen for the Judgment Enforcement Hour with best-selling author and financial forensic research professional Joe Dickerson. Victims of fraud, Ponzi schemes, contract disputes, estate settlements, and more will hear about his approaches to getting the recoveries they need. And Joe's guests will educate you on how to outsmart the debtors. Listen live Wednesdays at 4 p.m. Pacific Time and 7 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Business. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to The Wealth Intersection with Megan Gorman. If you have a question or comment about the program, your money, or what it can do for you, please send an email to megan at thewealthintersection.com. That's M-E-G-A-N at thewealthintersection.com. Now, back to the show. and we're back from commercial. I'm Megan Gorman and welcome back to The Wealth Intersection. And I'm here with Emily Paxia, the managing partner and co-founder of Poseidon Asset Management. So Emily, you know, one of the questions I forgot to ask you is why did you name it Poseidon? Mm. Okay, so it was actually really fun to come up with a name for our fund. And we grew up sailing. Uh. And one of the things, we also have a our last name Paxia is from Sicily, but it's a Greek when Sicily was part of the Greek Empire. I'm Sicilian, so everybody passed through Sicily. I everybody passed through Sicily. <laughs> I got to go see our family home there too, which was really neat. Was but it near Syracuse, where it, the Greeks used oh, to pass through? It was near Agrigento, but okay. it was, so it was right along that southern coast. Yeah, it was awesome. It was such a great experience. Uh, but anyway, so the Greek thing, the sailing thing, 
the way that Morgan and I think a lot about this is it is very much like sailboat racing or, or sailing in general, which is investing means you have to be very attuned to what is happening to the conditions around you and you have to monitor and adjust very carefully and appropriately because other, otherwise if you overreact it could be catastrophic if you don't react it could be catastrophic so it's a lot of unknown variables and you have to figure out how to kind of harness all of that information and use it to keep things moving forward so we felt like Poseidon it's a very powerful name and something kind of to pay homage to in our tradition, in our family tradition, and and in the way we think about investing. And then the names of our fund came from the goddess of the goddess of the harvest. So, it was, uh, yes. yeah, that's great. No, it's a good story. Thank you. So, I think one of the things I want to talk about in this segment is the future. And there's an article out right now with Vanity Fair. I don't know if you saw it um, about cannabis, and it talks about. You know, it's it's actually that the title of the article is you know um, why the pothead crowd thinks legalization of the plant might be a bad idea. So you know, of course, once it becomes in vogue, you've got to have your naysayers. But the article brings up an interesting point, which is we're at this sort of weird crossroads. So the law that regulates pot being a class class A drug is back from the Nixon era, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So you've got this heavy federal regulation. You've got the states, there's 46 states that have something on the books dealing with this. And then some of the states that have legalized, like the state of California we're sitting in today, is feeling frustrated because they haven't collected enough tax revenue. We're sort of in this perfect storm. And then, of course, you've got companies like Aurora was in the paper recently saying they can't wait to come over the border because they need a new market to break into. So with all of this, you know, I met you actually about 15 months ago, and I remember meeting you, and you were with a a number of different people in the space, and you all sort of echoed, we're thinking 24 to 36 months for legalization. And if we go back to that time period, Jeff Sessions was still the Attorney General. We were at a different point in time. So, so where are we from a federal landscape in terms of actual legalizing? Yes. Uh, so when we, over the past years, 2021 felt like it may be the year that it would happen. As we're quickly approaching 2020, we'll have to see. It's, it's feeling like there are a number of issues that need to be taken care of before that does happen. I think we've where we are now is I think we're right in the middle of this experimentation of legalization and regulation. And I was just in Washington last DC last week and I heard a lot of rhetoric from the old days that I hadn't heard in a while. And this is why it's so important for us to get out and go to the East Coast, to go to these different markets, to hear the way that society is thinking about this. So I, I feel like we're kind of in the middle of a bit of a turmoil right now. You're absolutely right. The number coming out, the numbers coming out of California are lackluster in terms of the expectations around taxes. However, I would say that if they adjust the taxes down, we will see an increase in the tax revenue for the state because I think what they've done is they've effectively priced people back into the illicit market because of the high tax rate on this product. And um, I think in, in the, yeah. illicit, the illegal market here still does incredibly well. I mean, it's like $46 billion in revenue or something yes. crazy like that. Yeah. So, I, I, you know, it's it's not because people aren't interested 
interested in buying cannabis, <laughs> it's because we've got to get the price right, and the taxes are the problem there. And we know, and everybody know, pretty much everyone knows this at this point. And we all know there's a fine balance in terms of taxation to where it does actually take people out of the consideration set. So California's got to get that right. Look, California was always going to have a challenge. I always say it's like trying to put a, a elephant through a keyhole of getting this industry from the what the gray market into this legal market. There are 54,000 cannabis businesses before Proposition 64 went into, wow. became law and came, went into full effect. That was an estimate too, by the way. So nowadays it's, we're just really trying to get this all right on track. And I know there are a lot of people who feel that legalization maybe wasn't great for their businesses, but the fact remains people were still going to, and still are going to prison for nonviolent possession of cannabis. And if we can't keep moving the ball down the court in terms of legalization and regulation, that will continue to happen. And certain segments of society, people of color will be the targeted demographic that actually suffers from that the most. So we really have to be mindful about the economic financial reasons why we're doing this, but also the social consequences of not having legal and regulated markets. Well, I think the social responsibility aspect Mm -hmm. of this is, is complicated. Mm -hmm. So, you know, on one hand, and I know you, you were uh, used to advise at the marijuana policy project um, in regarding with the fact that I think it was that the greatest harm of marijuana is prison. And you really were focusing on the criminal penalties but then, you know, you also have to think about in terms of corporations, mm-hmm. right? Um, one of the biggest groups who use marijuana are pregnant women. And we don't know what the implications are. So, so from a social responsibility standpoint, you know, what are some of the top priorities that companies and people in the industry and, and just the general public need to be aware of? Yeah. Uh, so first and foremost, I think that... Corporate social responsibility should really focus on how do we educate and inform people about how to integrate cannabis into their lives. If they want to have cannabis as a part of their lives, how can they do this in a way that's safe and effective? Mm -hmm. Um, The first thing is with legalization and regulation comes lab testing. And lab testing of products means that you get a clearer understanding of what's in it in terms of the potency of THC versus CBD and all of the other compounds of the plant. You also know that it's been free of other substances like pesticides or whatever else and then you know it's been passed through into this into this legal and regulated form if there are people who want to participate in cannabis but maybe we don't know what the implications are for pregnant women a lot of people think that certain aspects of the plant are perfectly safe for that but the whole industry is crying out for more and more uh, lab or more and more testing to try to understand research on how the plant integrates with the body we have an endocannabinoid system in our body There's no question about that. And the phytocannabinoids of the plant meet that very well. And and it's showing to be beneficial to people on many, many levels. But I personally would like to see more and more research done on what this means and how does that happen safely and effectively for people. Um, So that's just one of those things that I think the two things I think are those things from a public safety standpoint. But then in general, I also do think we have to find ways to create infrastructure around people who have gone to prison for something that now a lot of us are benefiting from financially. And how do we help to reintegrate those folks back into society, expunge their records, and and maybe get them into participating in, to, in the new legal and regulated market? And so, so what is some of the best thinking and, and solutions on that? Because I'm assuming like everything, this will be state by state. 
and how they handle it. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Because a lot of those uh, record issues were at the state level, not a federal Mm -hmm. issue. The federal thing is a whole different can of worms. But um, so, yeah, so there's some really neat technology that's meant to help clean up records very quickly. I think that's a really neat thing for corporations to get behind and support. There are a couple of organizations that are also trying to help uh, foster people through that experience of record expungement and getting back out there. And then I think we just, as an industry, have to think about how do we invite those people back to the table to participate in these businesses. It's tricky because we have these equity programs and a lot of times actually it puts equity applicants at a disadvantage because of the way they're structured and it's hard for them to get the capital to get those businesses going. So I think that, you know, Morgan actually mentioned this early on is that right now we're still in business building mode and we do not have a lot of extra resources. What we are doing is putting them towards things like California Cannabis Industry Association. We've donated MPP, DPA. We've done a lot of that because we're trying to keep things moving on a policy level. But at some point when we do have more resources available, Morgan had the great idea of how do we create some form of like microloans for some of these businesses? How do we help in terms of maybe sponsoring people to get back into business classes so they can figure out how to participate and run businesses? Because it's it's all about access and it's all about resources to be able to pull that along. So I think there's a lot of things we can do as an industry, but I think right now so many of us are so worried that if the political winds should change, if we don't keep focusing on the policy, that we're not going to even get to the point where we can really try to help to support these other communities and bring them back into the fold. So, Do you see a tough. lot of the big companies out there that you know are well-known in the space trying to take the lead on social responsibility, or is it more... You know, some of you have been working on this for seven, eight years, right? Coming together and saying, okay, we've gotten the industry to a certain point. Now we've got to start addressing that. Who's taking the lead here? Or is it not as clear? It's it's definitely the policy groups are still the ones taking the lead. Uh, I think some of the larger corporation and the corporations in the cannabis industry do have some CSR, corporate social responsibility, um, mandates. And I'd like to see more of that. I am seeing it in the hiring practices of the companies we like working with. They're definitely thinking about how do they make sure that they're hiring for diversity and hiring more women and people of color into the higher levels of their organizations. And that's something that we as a fund certainly encourage. And it's a dialogue we have right away in the beginning. And and even in the board construction of those companies, really important. But in terms of some of the things they're doing to give back, I do see some companies uh, doing local things. So some in Chicago, for example, doing things in their backyard to engage with the community and provide resources. And I think that's really important. And um, some of the local dispensaries here I see doing things like giving into the schools in terms of resources. They maybe can't give, obviously can't give money, but they can provide some resources to them, like some additional um, teaching materials and certain things like that. So I think they're there are companies that are one by one trying to find ways to contribute back into their communities, but uh, I'm not seeing a wide sweeping initiative there. Okay. And you don't see any one organization that if people want to support it, they should follow? I mean, uh, you know who does, I, I can say a name, uh, Flocana is doing a lot. Okay. They're really trying to give back to the communities up north um, because that's really where we have third and fourth generation growers up there. And some of them have really suffered through the legalization just because 
it really, it's tough getting a legal and regulated business up and running in California. It's extraordinarily expensive and it takes resources. So I've seen Flocana doing a lot to give back to those communities and they do it for the cannabis industry and they also do it for just the surrounding communities. Like they're doing things like the clean up the highway projects or building pathways for bicycles. They're doing everything they can to say, we appreciate that we can do our business here and we know that a lot of people have been in prison for this up here and and are looking at potentially losing a third generation of business because they cannot figure out how to get into the regulated market. So we're here to try to help to facilitate that. And I think that's really important. That's great. Yeah, that's really great. I mean, and you bring up policy a lot. And I think what got the headline news about a year ago is former Speaker of the House, John Bonner, had joined the board of a cannabis company. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what's interesting is if you look at the, the statistics coming out of Pew, you know, I think it's about 54% of boomers support legalization, 73% of millennials, and I think as Gen Xers, we're at 64%. <laughs> but that's probably because part of our generation forgot to vote, um, which is very Gen X. That's very Gen X. But do you think, you know, having some of these well-known policymakers, right, whatever their motivation is to get involved, yeah. does it help further the conversation? It's an... It's an excellent question. I've been wondering if it will, and I have to think it will because I think that Washington is an inside baseball kind of a town. And I think that John Boehner is somebody who's certainly inside there. Um, I think it is difficult because uh, there is a feeling that some people who were not in support of this then came over for you know fiscal benefit which is fine i actually i'm like whatever your reason i'd like everybody to be on my side so as long as i think people then can kind of get on the side of it and support and bring people along with them i'm i'm fine with it but i think that it it can only be helpful to the industry to have people who've grown up inside of washington and can help to facilitate some of those conversations because there's there's a whole aspect as we we work with um with CCIA, we've got seven of us in California share a lobbyist mm-hmm. group in Washington and Sacramento. And the things I'm learning about how to navigate federal politics, it's an unbelievably complicated and nuanced strategy game. And I think that having people who understand that implicitly is very helpful to us as an industry. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's interesting because I'm from New Jersey, you're from New York. I'm always amazed when you go, you know, we're in California, literally you and I could walk two minutes and go to a number of dispensaries. That's right. Um, When you go back east, it's a very different feeling. Um, All of a sudden we become Puritans again. People are like, oh, wow, cannabis? Like, you you would want to invest in that? Like, you've been in the dispensary? Do you see that sort of juxtaposition as you go around the country between attitudes out here and attitudes back east and I'm assuming in the Midwest it's even more conservative a hundred percent it's super different and it even depends town to town but so we invest in Massachusetts and it's I mean that that state still has dry counties so they're (laughs) from an alcohol perspective so it I always think about what happened with prohibition in the patchwork way that it still exists today it's it's actually amazing but so I think that's why a lot of the patience that we have because we're able to look at what happened with that and know it'll probably be that way with this. But I met a person in DC last week and she's very well educated person. Uh, and she, I could feel her viscerally cool towards me when she found out what I do. (laughs) And 
the and later on I found out it was her it's her impression that I want <laughs> I want the kids to, to be smoking marijuana and I'm like wow the message really isn't getting out as universally as we all think it is here in California that's the opposite of what I want like as I said in the beginning when I was in high school cannabis was not hard to come by no, not and, at all. and it still isn't but it's if we can really get these legal, I mean, but it was hard to get alcohol, yes. which was a legal and regulated product. Yes. Uh, same thing with cigarettes to some extent. I mean, there was always an 18-year-old who was able to buy them back then. And but they had not machines the, everywhere. They did they have machines. That, that's, that's true, made, too. Accessible. That's a good point. Yeah, and I was never a smoker because I had asthma, so it was just not even relevant to me. But but I, I that for me is, you know, it's like every time I travel to another area and I see something like that, it's like crystallizes in that moment why we have to keep informing and educating and making clear what we're trying to get out with this not what we're not what we're doing which is i certainly do not want teenagers and people <laughs> underage to be consuming cannabis but mostly i want if anybody's going to access it i want it to be safe and and healthy or not infused with pesticides or what we've seen with some of these vape things with some of the fillers that are being used in the illicit market so yeah you yeah. know it's interesting when i tell east coasters when they come out i'm like go to a dispensary when you're here mm-hmm. because a lot of the dispensary experiences are like going to an apple store mm-hmm. where there's an ipad on the table and they're able to show you the chemical compounds mm-hmm. and it's a very curated experience i mean you are it, it's very akin to being to going to a winery right in a, in a very different way. Right. I, one other to that point too, the, so I did dialogue with this lady and she was very nice. She shared her opinions with me strongly. And I, um, she said, I'm just so worried because it's just so potent, potent now. And one of the things that I always try to spread the word about is that the potency thing is because of the illegal nature of it. Right. So people are trying to get the best bang for their buck and go with the highest potency products. This market in California, I don't know if you've seen the trend, but one of the fastest growing trends is lower THC yes. products. And it's largely because women are starting to drive the purchasing decisions in this new and more mature market in terms of that. So I think that actually that's a trend and I'm hoping we'll, we'll be getting the data out of headset you know, as it goes in the real time and we'll be able to see that this is really a trend that it's like, I wanna take that to the East Coast and say, look, when a market matures, it actually moves away from that. That's the low-hanging fruit, the high-potency crowd. But there's a lot to be done on this lower-potency side, and I think it's really neat. I always remember the first time I went into a dispensary, and the gentleman asked me, you know, what was I looking to feel like? Did I just want to, to, to be mellow, or did I want to melt into the couch and the, the range in between? And, you know, he knew how... In, uh, apprehensive I was and he was like okay we're gonna you know he was very clear this is not something crazy you're gonna be doing that's great I'm glad to hear that that's important well and I went to also look because there's creams and there's you know products that are so interesting in these in these dispensaries it's true so I want to talk about you and your wealth journey you know are you just you know this has been an exciting seven years right is the goal to be a pioneer in cannabis and this icon in it? Is it to continue to grow in the investment space? Where, where are you going with this? I, I from this from the beginning, our goal has been to be a conduit for investors to be able to access the industry in a actively managed portfolio and and by doing so building great businesses and it's our belief that if we invest in integrity companies that are focused on the long view that we will have contributed to the building of a 
the next great American industry. Actually, now I think about it as a global industry and I, I can't help but get so excited when I go to see, you know, one of our businesses we invested in that's creating jobs in a town in Western Massachusetts where a factory closed 20 years ago. The, the factory workers put their tools down and walked out and never came back again. Goodness, and we're infusing capital into something that's creating an entirely new area of employment for people. And I just think that that's, that's just one of the neatest things is like, if you, if you, I truly believe if you invest to build businesses, that the returns will be so great and they will be long lasting. And that's what we're trying to do here. What keeps you interested in this business? This seriously one of the best questions I've ever been asked. It is being on the road and doing the diligence. So you, we, we see each other out there on social media. I'm always on the road. Yeah. This is like one of the few days I'm here in, in San Francisco. And it really is about all of the challenges and nuances of, of investing and helping businesses to grow. I get to sit on numerous boards with our companies and I just love diving into what is what is the next phase of that business. And they're all kind of in different phases. The tech companies are a little earlier. Some of these operators were dealing with true operational challenges of growth capital phases of development. And I just, I love all of those differences in those businesses and I love working with the founders. I think People who build businesses are incredibly interesting, and I love being around it. So that's what keep, keeps me interested in. And then now this new global piece, we're still so focused on our backyard. I mean, this California market is enormous, and, and the U.S. is enormous, and I think we'll, we will see some of the most amazing branded products built out of this industry in different form factors, different use cases. But I'm also so fascinated in recent work down in Colombia or in, in Mexico or in Europe and being able to see, okay, now they're starting on this journey. And we now have all of this information from the past six, seven, eight years here in the US that we can bring, and Canada, there was a lot that we've learned from the Canadian markets too, um, that we can bring to those countries and see how they unfold with these regulations. And it's just, that's how I stay interested is it's all about keeping it fresh. And some people ask, how do you, don't you feel like you're spread too thin? But I think the thing is when you're so focused on a sector that it all informs, one thing informs everything else. And it feels like it's all very tied together. So it's really great. That is amazing. I love yeah. it. One of these days, you're going to have to write a book. <laughs> I, yes, I, yes, I would love to. I think that there's, um, I think some there will be th stories that come out in that book that people will not even believe about some of the things we experienced in the early days of this and, and what it's been like. So yeah, yeah, no, I can only imagine. Now, are you getting a lot of women-owned businesses in cannabis? Great question. So I just spent the weekend at this retreat in Palm Springs that was called Females to the Front. It was focused entirely on female-founded businesses. There were 250 to 300 people there, and I think there were 10 very brave male <laughs> investors and business owners who came. We call them our allies, and I hope to see more at the next one, but that retreat sold out. It was like women are trying to stay relevant in this conversation. It had been a pretty good mix of male and female business owners. And we've seen um, a lot of men of influence coming into the industry. A lot of the, as I was mentioning earlier, resources, connections, 
a lot of money coming in on that level. And so we've seen some crowding out of female founders uh, and, and also just females at the top levels of the organizations. I always say it's not always about being the founder, but we need to get people in the top levels. We need to get them in the executive suite. We need to get them on the board and we need diversity because otherwise I, I think it adds, it it leaves a lot on the table in terms of potential for the businesses. It's not just because it's the right thing to do. I actually just believe it's the best way to run businesses is having a diverse perspective. So, you know, that it, so I'm not seeing a ton, but I am seeing a very strong and dedicated cohort in that aspect. And I, and I'm pretty excited about it. I came out of that weekend incredibly energized. And I said, I was going to be like Lucy from the peanuts cartoon with my little card hanging out. Like, I'm here. Come and talk to me. <laughs> like I'll be by the pool. Yeah. So, um, so I had I'm, I had dozens of conversations with founders over the weekend, female founders over the weekend, and I found they were incredibly receptive, and that they're they're just thinking about how do they grow their businesses. Um, yeah. So it's pretty exciting. So, in our last moments, a couple of questions for you. Um, what does wealth mean to you? Wealth means to me that you're doing, it's actually a two prong. So I think, I believe it's, you're doing something that enriches your life and in doing so you're generating income and wealth at a certain level that you're, that you're jumping exponentially from where you began. So I'm not doing this for just little incremental growth in my, in my wealth. I'm doing this to, to jump. That's amazing. And what's the best financial advice you've ever received? You've probably given it. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I, I still believe. Actually, it's my my brother. His boat was called Penny Pincher <laughs> because yeah, that's how he has a boat. Is he pinches his pennies? And his new board, he got a bigger boat, and now it's called Still Pinching. But he, I mean, he just always said, just know your numbers and stay frugal. And and I believe that that's that served us very well. And that was definitely something that was just ingrained behaviorally in our family. And I think that will always be. Pension. Pension <laughs> yeah. So at the beginning of the hour, you shared that, you know, about your dad launching a business and your mom working for him. What would they say today if they knew about Poseidon and all that you and Morgan are doing and sort of being pioneers? Uh, I, think th- I think that they would be super proud of us. I do. I think that, uh, that the fact that we do it with a heart is actually the thing that that would matter to them the most is that, you know, we're definitely here to make a lot of money for everybody, but we're also definitely here to build businesses and to enrich people's lives through it. And so I think that piece of it would be the thing that would make them the proudest. Well, Emily, it's been really great having you on the show. How can people find you? I know you're on Twitter. Yeah. Yeah, so on Twitter, at Poseidon Asset is our handle. Uh, On my Twitter, my personal is mpax1, I think, E-M-P-A-X-1. And then you can find us at poseidon.partners is our website. So come check us out. Reach us that way. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. And, uh, you know, to all our listeners, feel free to reach out with any questions or comments. I'm Megan Gorman. You can reach me at Megan at thewealthintersection.com, on Twitter at Wealth Intersect, and on Instagram at The Wealth Intersection. And until next time, thanks so much for joining us. Take care. Thanks so much for tuning in to The Wealth Intersection. Megan Gorman will be back with another program next Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We hope you'll join us then. 